Thank you, thank you. Um, as Jason said, I publish a monthly email newsletter for Christian men called The Masculinist. Um, obviously, it's targeted at the intersection of Christianity and masculinity. As, uh, as he said, this is a personal project of mine. My professional work is in state and local policy. Um, so all of us in New York have basically no free time, so why devote you know, a free time to a project like this? And there are a few reasons. One is that men are increasingly falling behind in society, uh, failing, actually, in many ways. Two is that the church has really not gained traction in reaching men, despite many attempts. And third has been the rise of these secular men's gurus, like Jordan Peterson, who are attracting hordes of young followers. So I'll just touch on, on a few of those. You know, first, we do read a lot about the problems of men in society. Uh, the feminist writer Hannah Rosen uh, wrote a very famous piece in The Atlantic that was later turned into a book called The End of Men. My professional colleague, Kay Heimowitz, who's a nationally known expert on gender and family issues, uh, she wrote a book a few years ago, uh, fairly recently, called Manning Up, How the Rise of Women Has Turned Men into Boys. And uh, I'll put the cover of that up. I think it's a great cover, so I'm just going to leave it there. It's a short book uh, and recommended. Um, women now outperform men um, academically in primary and secondary school. Um, now about 60% of college attendees are women, only 40% men. Um, men today are actually physically weaker than they used to be. Uh, not as strong as dad as measured by grip strength, another test that they're doing. Testosterone levels in young men have fallen by over 20% in recent years. And there's actually been uh, a, a fairly large drop in sperm levels as well to the point that many men are essentially infertile. Uh, GQ just within the last week put out a big package called Sperm Count Zero, which you can, which you can Google that talks about this. I hope this next stat has improved. But as recently as a couple years ago, there were 7 million prime working age men, that's men ages 25 to 54, who were not working and not even looking for work. They coined a term for this called NEAT, neither in employment, education, nor training. So these are the grown men stereotypically living in mom's basement playing video games all, all day and not very interested or motivated in doing much else. But the truth is, things have not really been that much better in the church. Attendance in church is also about 60% female, 40% male, although that, that varies depending on you know, what, what denomination, et cetera. Uh, there's been estimates that as many as a quarter of married women who attend church do so without their husbands. Essentially, all Christian media is marketed and targeted at women. You can think, for example, about the K-Love radio network. And um, there have been a number of, of men's ministries that have sort of come and gone over the years. You can think about the YMCA from yesteryear through to the, remember, you guys remember the Promise Keepers, some of the Promise Keepers, uh, which I believe is now defunct, and Mark Driscoll, uh, if you remember him. Some of the, you know, these have basically kind of come and gone mostly ineffectively, and some of them, like Driscoll, have failed spectacularly. But at the same time, in the secular world, we've seen people like Jordan Peterson amass gigantic followings of overwhelmingly young men. His book, 12 Rules for Life, has sold over a million copies um, already. But there are a lot more of these guys. 
uh, for example, Joe Rogan. Who knows who Joe Rogan is? Does anybody know who Joe Rogan is? Joe Rogan runs, runs one of the most popular podcasts in the world. He has hundreds of thousands to well into the millions of people watch his podcast, just watch them live on YouTube, or watch the YouTube version of them. One thing many of you probably did see was this headline about Elon Musk smoking pot. Well, that happened when Elon Musk was a guest on the Joe Rogan podcast. All right, so Rogan has is, is just got a huge following. There are many more of these people you've probably never heard of. Stefan Molyneux, Sargon of Akkad, the folks behind the Chapo's Trap House uh, podcast. And they have huge, I mean, everybody here that I just mentioned has hundreds of thousands of followers at least. And so they have, you know, many, many, many of these people have cracked the code on reaching men in a way that, frankly, the church is not. So that's sort of my motivation. And in part, it's like uh, upstream of my work in economic development. I really realized most places don't have an economic development policy problem. They have social problems you know, with men on opioids, many other issues. You can never create jobs in that environment. So in essence, we have to work on uh, the, the social and the spiritual side. Even Harvard economist Ed Glazer has said, we need essentially need a new great awakening in America if we're going to deal with some of these issues. So this is a huge topic. Um, you know, I'm, I'm here for men and to help pastors better think about the issues related to men in the modern world. Uh, again, the, news, the essays in my newsletters are for men, and they're very direct. As I always tell people, this is not a safe space, and the same thing is basically true of this lecture. Uh, but while my focus is men, you should care uh, if you're a woman, particularly if you're a single, college-educated Christian woman who hopes to be married in an, er in an age in which 60% of the people going to college and 60% of the people going to church are women. So those ratios are not good. So I'm not interested in tearing the women down, but I want to find a way to bring, bring the men up and uh, improve some of those numbers. So this is a huge topic. I can only scratch the surface in these talks. And I'm going to focus on uh, some areas that I think the church has really not fully grappled with, namely the changes in the landscape of society, dating, marriage, the economy, household structures that have radically undermined much of its traditional teaching and kind of life advice. And so in these Volcari lectures, I want to go through some of those changes so that we can all start wrestling with them ourselves. Today, I want to talk about uh, dating and relationships and marriage. And then uh, on the October 7th, I want to talk about the economy and households. And again, do I have the answers for what to do? No, I don't. But I think these are the things we need to be talk, thinking about uh, individually and as the church. And I'll just tell you, you know, some of the material is not pleasant, but I think reality of this world is something we have to have the courage to confront. So if we roll back the clock a little bit and think about how matchmaking used to work and marriage up through, say, the 20th century, especially the second half of the 20th century, um, we saw that, um, you know, historically in the, in the West, Men and women who are not in religious vocations married and married for life. It was economically and socially difficult to be single, although obviously there were singles around. And while uh, certainly premarital sex was not a rarity, uh, there was a lot more of it going on than we might like to think. Um, there were strong societal norms um, around chastity and a lot of consequences for violating them. And things like uh, venereal disease and uh, unplanned pregnancy really tremendously act as a check on behavior in those areas. 
Once married, it was not easy to get divorced. I mean, look at Henry VIII and what he had to do in order to get his divorce, right? Even the king had trouble getting divorced. And, and, and doing so came with very high social costs. So it was not always till death do us part, right? It wasn't always idyllic, but it was certainly a much, much more stable marriage environment than today. And because you needed to be married and you had to stay married for life, basically, there was a tremendous focus on making a good marriage match and making it happen. So families especially were very keen on this. So young men were heavily encouraged to develop and display high character and to establish themselves economically so that they would be seen by women and, and their families as good marriage material. Uh, and but for their part, women similarly were very eager to portray themselves as, as uh, high-quality wives and to get, you know, get married uh, to a good man and start on that journey. Again, that is a big, big oversimplification, but it gives you something of a kind of a general idea of how things function. Now I want you to think about all of the changes that have occurred in our society that have radically undermined that traditional understanding. And I'll just rip through several of these. Number one, in 1943, it was discovered that penicillin would cure syphilis. And that was really the first bend in the curve towards promiscuity. Secondly, reliable birth control and abortion on demand dramatically reduce the risk and consequences of unplanned pregnancies. Again, leading to a tremendous increase in promiscuity. Three, thanks to the sexual revolution, premarital sex and extramarital cohabitation are socially accepted. Not just socially accepted, socially endorsed. So you don't have to marry anymore to obtain socially acceptable sex. We also have technological change, such as the Tinder app, that has created a ready venue for people who want to have sex to find it. We can think of uh, number five, divorce. Uh, thanks to no-fault divorce, divorce is now very easy to obtain and very socially acceptable. So you are not in a position where you need necessarily to make a good match up front. It's a lot easier to get a do-over. Six, women and men in general face far fewer social constraints and social pressure to marry. Now, clearly, there's still some pressure to marry, as you know, some of us may have experienced in our lives. But it's certainly nothing like what it used to be. And you can retain very high status in society as a single person. Right, something that would have been inconceivable uh, in generations past. You know, seven, women have been freed from previous social constraints that sort of made them dependent on husbands and fathers. Today, women are legally independent and they are economically self-sufficient. And even when they run into financial trouble, you have institutions ranging from the state to the church who are willing to provide assistance. So this, these changes uh, are the kind of the root of uh, Gloria Steinem's famous quip that a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle, right? Because today, that's sort of the way it is. And then lastly, families, church, and other social actors are far less influential than before. So that's a lot of changes, a lot of big substantive changes. What I find most notable about them is that virtually everyone in society thinks that all or certainly the majority of these are good things. There is absolutely no appetite in society to
to roll back these changes in any way. In fact, the pressure is generally going the other way to essentially eliminate any remaining stigmas around, for example, pressure to merit. So I wouldn't expect any change. But obviously, these changes have come with very profound impacts on society and dating and marriage and everything else that we find. And just, just to illustrate, just a couple quick stats. Um, this is a chart of out-of-wedlock birth rates in America since 1930. In the 1950s, fewer than 5% of children were born out of wedlock. Today, over 40% are born out of wedlock. I would say that is a, a huge change. And it's not just that things have changed. Things are still changing. The uh, online dating site OKCupid lets you answer huge numbers of questions, which it can then use to rank whether you are compatible. Here are changes over a 10-year span, recent 10, a 10-year span, of the question, is there such a thing as having too many sex partners? Well, in 2005, 30%, a little less than a third of people said there's no such thing as having too many sex partners. By 2015, that was up to 48%. So basically half the people in the online dating world think that there is no such thing as having too many sex partners. So uh, that's really a change. And so essentially, um, to kind of generalize some of what has happened, what I would say is uh, what used to be essentially a marriage market has been disaggregated into three separate relationship markets that we see today. We have essentially the sexual market, the dating market, and the marriage market. People today can engage in relationship-free sex, that is, hooking up, that used to only be available through prostitution. They can date casually or long-term, or they can get married. And you can move from one status to the other pretty easily, with the exception that once you are married, it is still a little difficult to have sex outside of marriage. That's not acceptable yet. But again, things are changing. You may have seen a New York Times Magazine cover story from earlier this year on the rise of open marriage, basically touting the virtues of open marriage and what they call polyamory. Uh, so that may well change as well. And again, these have created a relationship landscape far at odds with the way that Western culture has traditionally understood things and the way that the church kind of assumes works and should works. If you think about the novels of Jane Austen, for example, all of the focus is on finding the right person to marry. Once the wedding happens, the story's over, right? The wedding is the end of the story. Well, today, right, getting married, making it to the altar really doesn't change anything. You are effectively as exposed to the relationship market after you are married as you were before you were married, right? No matter how personally committed you might be to your marriage, if your spouse decides to walk away from it, there is absolutely nothing you can do about it today. One of the teachings you constantly hear in the church is that marriage is not a contract. Marriage is much more than a contract. Marriage is a covenant. Well, the reality in the United States 2018 is that marriage is actually less than a contract. Because you can actually go to court and enforce the provisions of a contract. But the promises that you make when you're married don't bind you at all. To put it in contract language, you can terminate for convenience at any time. And there's nothing anything can do about it. It's certainly a far, far, far more difficult environment. People today 
can never have the reflexive security in their marriages that, say, my grandparents' generation did, where it was just assumed. You didn't have to worry whether that marriage was going to be there. You knew it was going to be there. And I think that's the least of it. I mean, what I, what I, what I, I think the, the most general way to describe what has happened uh, is, again, the term that I use is the neoliberalization of sex and relationships. And I'm not the first person to characterize it that way, uh, but I think it's a good way to think about what has happened. Neoliberalism is a very pejorative term today, and I chose it for that reason, that it was pejorative. And also, the thing, if you choose a provocative term, maybe more people will come. Uh, but uh, the term neoliberalism, as I use it, refers to the excessive you know, primacy of the marketplace as the organizing principle of the economy and the organizing principle of society. And so that's why I talk about the use of the term marketplace, the dating marketplace, the sexual marketplace. Match.com, Tinder, OkCupid, what are these? These are fundamentally marketplaces, very similar to many of the other online marketplaces that many of us use. Right? Today, sex and relationships in America are essentially commodities and treated as such. And just because we don't personally think of them that way, and just because we don't want them to be that way, and just because we don't think they should be that way, doesn't change the reality of how the world works any more than our opinion of the global economy changes the reality of finding a job in New York. Right? The market doesn't care what I think. Right? It is what it is. And so, um, you know, again, no matter what you think or how you operate, if your partner becomes unsatisfied with the product you are providing at any time, you know, you're out of luck. People can change dating partners, sexual partners, even marital partners, like changing any other product or like switching apartments. And like switching apartments, it might not be cost-free. Um, there may be friction, you know, there may be, a, you know, but it's a process and you can go through it. And again, paradigmatically, right, we see this in New York City all of the time. All of us observe this in action with people that we know every single day. And so if we think about the kind of this world as a marketplace, uh, then how does that marketplace function? And I want to share a, some data that will shed a little bit of light on that. Uh, because of online dating, there is actually a lot of hard data from the online dating world about how people actually behave online. Not what they say, but what they actually do. OkCupid okay, especially has made a lot of their data available to researchers with many studies that have been published on it. And so I want to show you some of what's coming out of online. That's not the, that's not the only aspect of this world, but it'll give you a, cho a choice and beyond, uh, give you a flavor. But beyond essentially um, the fact that the data is available, I pick online dating for another reason. Some of you may have seen this chart. You may have uh, seen the Washington Post a few years ago. Um, this is where people are meeting online now. The number one re way people uh, still meet is through friends, but you can see that that's still in steep decline there. Online has shot up from nothing to over 20%. The other thing that's going up here is at the restaurant or bar. All things that have gone down are meeting through coworkers, through family, uh, through, through primary, secondary school, through neighbors. 
And interestingly, people meeting in church has suffered a catastrophic collapse. Only 1% to 2% of people today are meeting their spouse at church. And given that, you know, there has been a decline in religious practice, but a lot more than 1% to 2% of people in the United States go to church. Nobody but only goes to church. <laughs> Well, more than 1% to 2% of the population goes to church. And so you start to see, you know, the fact that in church, right, has collapsed and online or at the bar is soaring is not necessarily like a positive indicator right there. So, again, let's look at the dynamics. Um, And, again, some of this isn't necessarily great material. I'll just warn you. First, one group of people looked at um, how people rated the attractiveness of members of the opposite sex relative to age. And so the easiest way to explain it is just to show it. This is from OKCupid. It's a woman's age versus the age of the men who look best to her. And so what we see here is that essentially women find men attractive who are basically around their own age. They tend to find women a little more, men who are a little older attractive when they're very young, a little younger and more attractive when they're older. But basically it scales with, um, scales with uh, a woman's own age. What do you think this chart looks like for men? <laughs> uh, this is it. Based, no matter how old you are, the woman that looks best to you is in about 20. And there's a, here's what the feminist website Jezebel had to say about that. And by the way, talk about changes in our society. Right? Note the name Jezebel, the fact that there could be a mainstream website that proudly labels itself Jezebel should tell you something about this world. Um, Let's see. They said, a woman is at her best when she's in her very early 20s, period. And really, my plot doesn't show that strongly enough. The four highest-rated female ages are 20, 21, 22, and 23 for every age group of guys but one. Younger is better, and youngest is best of all. And if over the hill means the beginning of a person's decline, a straight woman is over the hill as soon as she's old enough to drink. There was another study hot off the presses this month. It got a lot of press in major media. And these authors looked at online dating and measured attractiveness in four cities, New York, uh, Boston, Chicago, and Seattle. And they used a little bit of a different mechanism. They used Google's PageRank algorithm to determine which profiles were rated most attractive. So the same way Google decides what search results to show you, which are the best search results, they use that same approach to model, um, uh, to, to model attractiveness. And then their study, they published a bunch of curves showing how attractiveness um, changes over time. And, and this is basically it. Women are at the top and men are at the bottom. And so you see, again, similar to the other one, women start out very, very high, and then just kind of go straight down. Men start out low and then actually go up. And according to this, I find this hard to believe, men actually peak in attractiveness at age 50, according to this. Now, I don't think that, that's, I don't think that there are a lot of 22-year-olds who would rank the 50-year-old guy the most attractive, but I think what we're seeing is the artifact of this scaling. Older women tend to find, you know, they're looking at men basically their own age, and then start to go down. 
So what we see is essentially women are much higher rated than men in their early, in their 20s. And then later it shifts to men being high, higher rated than women in their 30s. Later on, the two lines cross at age 32. Uh, so again, this might comport with some stereotypes. Uh, and interestingly, the average age of marriage in the United States is 29 for men and 27 for women. So men and women are tending to get married sort of when you know, women are, are still ranked higher, but the lines are converging. Lines are converging. So uh, this study also found that New York is a particularly bad market for single women. <laughs> Here's what the Atlantic Monthly wrote. New York is a man's market, at least according to this particular study. It's not just that older men are considered more desirable in New York. New York is a special case for men. It has the, it's the market with the highest fraction of women, but it's also about having an incredibly dense market. And again, I think this would not be surprising. It's no surprise that shows like Sex in the City and Girls were set in New York, talking about that very dysfunctional data. So, so what I would say is, I think if you had to be honest about this data, men come off pretty much as superficial cads. That's probably not a surprise. That, that piece is probably not a surprise to you. But there is another way to look at this attraction data. And uh, it's about the distribution of attraction of ratings. And so another researcher took a look at it and said, basically, here's the distribution of how men ranked women. So this is unnormalized data, but you see it basically looks like a bell curve, exactly what you would expect. Women, uh, you know, most in the middle and then tapering off to the edges. You know, m most people are of average attractiveness, right? You would think that's how it's supposed to work. How do you think women rank men? Here's that chart. Women rank 81% of men below average in attractiveness. And only 7% are rated above average in attractiveness. So when we think about why we're having trouble making this match, right, we see that the men are all very interested in 20-year-olds, right, and the women sort of think that all but 7% of the men don't measure up. And so, again, this shows you, like, market dynamics that persist in part because there is no impetus to actually make a match today in the way that there was in the past. Maybe this is how men and women always thought, but they recognize how it should work. Yes? Is it physical appearance, or is it like the whole package? Uh, I, think it's um, it's, I, I think it's physical appearance. I think it's physical appearance. There's a lot on that. I have, I have a lot of material on that. It's just, I could talk to you later and get you some, some actually follow-up stuff. It's, a, it's a much more complicated. It's kind of much more complicated, I, I can tell you. But you're, but you're right about that. I would say the drivers of attraction are very different for women versus men. That's one thing I would say. It's definitely very clear. So what is, again, how does this feed through? In part because there's no impetus to make the match, right? People can essentially just, well, I'm just going to keep playing the field and making the thing work. And ultimately, we see that that changes a lot of the stats around marriage. So here, this is a chart that got, went viral on Reddit, which is the percentage of women, uh, you can, probably the men's chart looks very similar, uh, obviously, uh, by age who were never, who've never been married. 
1980 versus 2015. So you can see there has been a dramatic increase in the percentage of never married women. Now, I think the good news is like 80 to 85 percent of women still marry by around 40 to 45 years old. But when we're in this 40s age grain, keep in mind that's Generation X. That's my generation, 30 years old, where you have essentially triple the number of people who've never been married, as in triple the share of people who've never been married in the past, is uh, that's core, that's more core millennial. Some researchers are now predicting essentially a quarter of millennials are never going to get married. A quarter of millennials will never get married. So how do we respond to some of this? I mean, there's just like chart after chart after chart and we can think about societal change after societal change after societal change, right? We haven't even begun to, to grapple, for example, with this rise of this kind of like gender identity stuff. Like we haven't even just kind of started to think about that in a sense. So the world is just continuing to go on and on and on with more and more and more changes. And so how do we respond? And like I said, I think the first thing is I don't know. <laughs> that would be my first, the first thing to say. I don't know all the answers. And... Um, I also don't want to give any real glib advice. I think it's very tempting to give glib advice. Oh, you're like a, a single 33-year-old woman? Here, just do X. Oh, you're a man whose uh, wife is telling you she wants to divorce you? Oh, just be more of a servant leader. I mean, we could be, in a sense, those nests, we're not necessarily giving bad advice, but I think we need to recognize this environment is just an extraordinarily difficult environment in which to find a spouse and to stay married. It's a very difficult environment. And there's no, the simple advice that may have worked in a bygone era uh, really doesn't work. It may work for some, it may work at some level, but it doesn't work what we did before. And I think one thing I've noticed is that, you know, I think the church sort of in part recognizes some of these changes, but takes the view that this is not how it's supposed to be and we shouldn't be like that. And I think in some level that is actually true because, right, as, as Christians, we are called to live very differently from the world. But we have to be wise in how we do that as well or we risk kind of exposing ourselves to kind of, you know, a lot of harm. For example, let's say I'm someone that says, I don't like this mercenary economy that we have today. I think we should be back in the era when employees and employers were very loyal to each other. So I'm going to be loyal to my company. And so... I'm working for my company, and I get an offer from somebody else for more money, and I say, nope, turning it down, I'm going to stay loyal to my company. Then my company stops giving me training, really investing in, in my, my skills. I say, you know, I'm going to stick it out because I want to be loyal. People should be loyal. We should have this loyalty. Then I stop getting promoted. I start getting, stop getting really good assignments. And again, I say the same thing. I'm going to stay loyal. Then I turn 50. I get laid off. I don't have the skills. I don't have the resume, and I'm essentially left high and dry. Right, Just saying, I'm going to be loyal because this isn't how it's supposed to be is not a smart move to make in this society. And similarly, the church and others, I think, like to tell men, you should act like you know, that responsible dad from the 1950s. Um, Jim Garrity, he's a writer for the Conservative National Review website. He actually has a video, you can go watch this on YouTube, short video, called Ward Cleaver is the Sexiest Man Alive. Who here does not know who Ward Cleaver is? Okay, good. <laughs> right. Ward Cleaver, uh, right, was the, was the father from this iconic late 50s, early 60s sitcom called Leave it to Beaver. Many millennials have never heard of Leave it to Beaver, believe it or not. If you were my age or, or younger or, you, or older, you grew up watching it. 
but he was sort of the, the archetype or the emblem of the 1950s suburban dad, right? And so I just asked myself, if men are supposed to act like Ward Cleaver today, where are they supposed to find a June Cleaver, his wife from the TV show, right? Because, no, you know, the 1950s housewife is extinct, and no one today would tell a 21st century woman, you should go back and act like a 1950s housewife. So again, just saying as a man, I, you should go back and act like that, yeah, that's really not responding, that's role playing, right? It's like going to Comic Con or like the Society for Creative Anachronism people who dress up in chainmail and joust. We're acting like an era that doesn't exist anymore. So we have to find out what it means to be different in today's era. We have to find out what it means to be different in today's era. And I, I, again, I, I have a few ideas that I will just throw out there, not complete ideas, but ones I, I, I think can, you can consider. I'm not telling anybody, you know, I'm not the authority in how to live your life. Uh, this is, so this is just like what I've, I've, how I've sort of thought about it myself. One, I think it, there is one thing I think I, I can feel pretty confident is as Christians, we are called to abstain from the sexual marketplace in that, you know, we can only have sex inside of marriage, right? There is such a thing as too many sex partners. There's an objectively correct answer to that question. You know, if we're out hooking up and if we're having sex with people we're dating, then we are part of the problem. We are perpetuating and investing in the dysfunctional system instead of being dangerous. It's not easy to do, but you know, I think that the teachings of the Bible on this are very clear. And then if we're married, you know, we should stay married to the extent that it depends on us. Sometimes it doesn't depend on us. It's like Paul said, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Sometimes you can't be at peace with all men, but so far as it depends on us, we should stay married. We should stay married. The second thing I say is, you know, we have to take finding, you know, finding a high-quality spouse today is almost like it's like trying to get into the Ivy League, right? Think about it. How many parents in New York right now are thinking, probably some of us, how do I get my kid into that right preschool or that most elite private school so that I get him on the track to building the resume that is going to get him into an Ivy League school or some kind of super high-grade school, right? We take education, career, our artistic endeavors extraordinarily seriously, and we make big moves years in advance to position us where we want to get me. I, I talk to a lot, a, lot of, a lot of young people here. I'm, I'm going to get this two years experience in New York. Then I'm going to be applying to MBA school. I hope to get to these schools. I'm going to do this. It's, we, we manage our careers. And yeah, I think a lot of times we often just think that marriage and these things just going to happen. And a lot of times it doesn't. So I feel like this is one where we really have to say, how do I think about my career? How do I think about my, uh, my approach to the arts if we're in the arts field? How do I think about education? That same level of focus that New Yorkers bring to every other endeavor, I think we probably got to bring that to this problem, because just like, it, just like career, is super competitive, and it's super difficult to get it right. It's super difficult to get it right. Now, it may well be people say, well, you know, I didn't do some of that, and now I'm older and single, and I'm screwed. And I would say it's not too, I was there two years ago. I was 46 years old and single. And so I had to recognize in myself that I'd sort of dug a hole and I said, well, I'm, I'm in this hole. I'm going to stop digging. I had, I had to change things about myself because I realized I was not the person 
like a high quality marriage match. I had to work on personal things, and I had to make it my mission, you know, to find someone to marry, which fortunately did. And two years later, we're married. We have a, a son, which is great. Now, we would like to have more kids, but you know what? That might not happen because of our age. And I think I have to realistically understand that because of the choices I've made in life, there may be consequences to those decisions I can't overcome. But I think that even though maybe, maybe we can't all have kids, but we could definitely, there's definitely people I know in New York who've gotten married in their 50s. It's, it's not too late for us at any stage of life to go from where we are. And then I'll just throw, a, I'll just throw one out there. I, I, I was really kind of disturbed by the church, the idea that 1% to 2% of the people meet their spouse in church. I think we should try to, we have to find a way to make church a place where people can meet in order to get married. Christians can meet. We're supposed to only marry other Christians, right? So you would think church would be the best place to meet, but even many Christians are looking online. They're looking on eHarmony, Christian Mingle, and it's like, why, why is that? And, um, you know, as I say that it's never happening, I can name two couples here at Central who met and got married here at Central. So I think that is... It's, there's, there may even be more. That's just the two that I know. So I think that's two more than zero, and that's a positive move. But uh, I, think that, I think that that's an example of the fact that it can happen. I don't have any data on this, but there have been a number of kind of journalistic takes on it. And basically what people are saying is they, do not, they explicitly do not want to date anyone in their church because they are afraid that if it doesn't work out, they're going to get forced out of their community. And, like, I love my church. And I don't want to have to leave my church because I asked somebody on a date and it didn't work out. So I would suggest that you know, kind of everybody has a part to play in changing that, which means I think from the, from the single guy perspective, it means you actually have to ask women out on dates, right? not go on to the online site and just send off. It's a lot, it requires a lot less courage to send an email message just to message someone. I think men have to be able to just have the courage to get up and ask women on a date. I, you know, and for women... Uh, Again, it helps to say yes, but if they're going to say no, if you're going to say no, then I would say try to do it kindly. Because all it's going to take is one guy getting a highly public negative rejection to ensure nobody ever asks anybody else out church again. And again, if, if it doesn't work out, I think it's incumbent on the people who are dating to make sure it ends amicably, that they don't gossip, et cetera, so that people can stay in the community and they're willing to explore whether they're, whether they're compatible without feeling like they get one shot. You gotta, we got to feel like we just get one shot. And I think, again, that's kind of in part up to Jason and the elders to create that environment here, um, which, again, um, you know, I'm sure they're, they're up there thinking on these issues. And, and then lastly, this one may be my most controversial point, which is that for people who are single and frustrated, it might be... Uh, something you could do is to reconsider New York City as a location. And that's, that's this, is a, this is notoriously shark-infested waters for dating, especially for women. It's a terrible environment. It's objectively speaking a terrible environment. I mean, that's not, that's not Aaron Ren speaking. That's scientists publishing in journals written up in the Atlantic who are talking about that, right? Hollywood knows this. That's why they set those shows here. And so, again... Uh, there are tons of Christian singles in New York, which you would think would make it a great place uh, to meet someone, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be happening based on the frustration. So 
there's no necessary, that doesn't necessarily solve all your problems. You can move somewhere else and it's no better. But I know that like, when we think about it, we'll move for school, we'll move for career. If I want to be in tech, I'll move to Silicon Valley. I think it's something that we shouldn't just consider ourselves, this is a variable that cannot be changed. Again, I'm not saying you should do it, but it's one that we ought to ask and at least think through. So those are a few through thoughts, hardly exhaustive. And again, I would, I would encourage you to think through these things for yourself. What does it mean to have socially approved, unlimited you know, hooking up? What does it mean to have a society where it doesn't make kind of socially indifferent as to whether you're married or not? What does it mean to have you know, unlimited birth control, divorce on, you know, no-fault divorce, abortion on demand? What are these societal changes? What environment has it created? And then some of these charts about just some of the realities out there and like how do we respond to this? I think it's something that requires um, significant additional thought because uh, you know, I think it's clear from the frustrations of even many pastors, if you read any of these marriage books and those the people online will talk about they're pulling their hair out, we haven't cracked the code on that. And so I think we have to somehow take the measure of this environment and find out how to respond to it.